perhaps any song that you've heard in the hymn book or throughout the ages that have to do with storms and life and the providence of God and trusting the Lord are pretty much adequate when you read through Acts 27. Now, many of the songs that we have put to words, we have put to music, are often untheologically sound, and that's unfortunate. But for the most part, if you think about psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that you've heard that have to do with difficulties, raging seas, the anchor for our soul, I want to remind you that the church has often been depicted as a ship in the midst of a, a tumultuous, tempestuous sea, and that the Lord God of eternity will deliver us home safely. That's a good thing, isn't it? So today I want to talk to you about the providence of God in the midst of difficulty and danger, or difficulties and dangers. Acts chapter 27, we're approaching the end. Are you glad? We're going to tackle another book, probably in the fall we'll take a little reprieve and I'll preach a few sermons just um, around the scripture and here and there, expositionally, and then pick up maybe in September with perhaps the book of Daniel, praying about that. But here we are, Acts 27, Paul is en route to Rome, and here's what the word of the Lord says. Let's just read verses 1 through 9, and then I'll walk you through section by section. And when it was decided that we, notice the we, that personal pronoun is there for a reason. Why? Because Luke is actually on this journey. Keep that in mind. He's not only a historian, not only a physician, not only inspired by the Holy Spirit in the writing, but he is a character witness of these events. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete of Salome, Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Well, again, there is an emphasis upon the eyewitness account that Luke is actually on this journey, and Paul is headed to Rome. And why is he going there? Because he appealed to who? Caesar. So I want to remind you of something. This is history that you've just read, but it's also theological history. And that's very important because our God is in control and we need to understand that this is going on in, the, in history, but also it's theological because we know that in essence, if we narrow it down, all of history is theological. Correct? Because our God is in control. In this final section, Paul will face three life-threatening events. He's going to be in the worst storm, beginning in verse 10, that he's ever been in. Beginning in verse 9. No other storm compares to this one. Physical storm on the Mediterranean Sea. But he also is going to experience shipwreck. Okay, that's, that's pretty bad too, isn't it? Uh, and to much chagrin from all of you, he's actually going to land in Malta and a snake is going to bite him. Boy, I'm telling you, that scares me right there. You... Right? That's life-threatening enough. For most of us, we would never actually have the snake bite us because we'd have a heart attack before it actually bit us. Right? But this is going to happen. In all of this, his, our Heavenly Father orders the events. And he teaches us that our Heavenly Father not only looked after his servant Paul, but by inference, his watch care is over us all the time when we belong to the Lord. 
I want to remind you of Proverbs 2, verse 8. The Lord guards the paths of justice and he watches over his saints. Please understand that as we walk through this text this morning, that this is history, it is theological history, but it also reminds us of our God's watch care over us as his people. And folks, I hope you've learned this in your pilgrimage as a believer. You can trust the Lord. He has an absolute perfect track record. And when his word says it, you can take it to the bank. You need to believe that and know that. And that's what we see in this text. So this is no European vacation that Paul is on. Yes, he's in the Mediterranean Sea, but he's not on a luxury liner. By no means. And you might have, some of you may have taken a cruise on the Mediterranean. And there's so much history. And, and I'd like to do this. Anybody want to pay for it? <clears throat> I'll go. But the deal is, it's, it's awesome, I'm sure. It's beautiful. But that's not the picture we see here. It's not a European, it's not an European vacation. You know, he's not on a luxury liner. He's actually accommodated, he's accompanied with prisoners, right? The boat is full of prisoners and the Augustan cohort, the, the Roman military. And so if you lived in Jerusalem and someone were to say to you, what is the uttermost parts of the earth? What do you think you would have said? Living in that known world. You would have said Rome. Did you know that? You would have. If you were on the street, someone walked up and you lived in Jerusalem. Rome was the center of the empire. And to a Jerusalemite, an Israelite, man, that was a long way away. That was seen. And obviously we've been following that geographical understanding of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. And so we saw that transition around 18, 19, and 20 of Acts. But here we see Paul headed to Rome. But I want to remind you, was it a beautiful city? Yes, it would be like living in Georgia and saying, I'd like to go to Athens, Georgia. Right? Or if you lived in Alabama, you want to go to T-Town, Tuscaloosa, the home of Roll Tide. Well, if you were a Roman citizen, then the goal, you would like to go to Rome to see its beauties and its majesty. But I want to remind you of what the historian Seneca said. Rome was also a moral cesspool. Another Greek scholar called it a moral sewer. So put all these things together. You know, it's possible for us to date these events. We believe that it took place in either the fall of 59 AD or the fall of 60 AD. I'll tell you why in a few moments. Well, the prisoners were on their way to die in Rome. And the Augustan cohort is accompanying them, which would be called the Imperial, Arm, Imperial Army. And they would transfer prison. They were, they would, they were prisoner transfers. That's what these uh, Roman centurions did. The Imperial Army, can you imagine? These guys weren't friendly. They were not nice. I mean, that was their occupation, to kill people. And so we know this. But they get on a ship. They're accompanied by Aristarchus of Macedonia. He will be mentioned in Colossians 4.10 and Philemon 24. He was someone that loved Paul and desired to be with him. And so he's on the journey. And then we see he's treated kindly by Julius the centurion. Uh, you know, in that day, you didn't get three meals in prison. As a matter of fact, you got nothing unless it was provided for you by your family. Maybe we should try that in the United States of America. Seriously. Uh, I, I had a military person tell me this week that uh, they're treated better in prisons than he was in the military as far as food's concerned. Now, that was not the case. They landed in a port, and if you landed in a port, who is responsible for helping you as a prisoner? It would be your family that would meet you, i.e. of what you see in the text with Paul being accompanied by his friends and family. Now, the NAS says that they sailed under the lee of Cyprus, and the ESV says the same thing. And if you're like me, in nautical terms, you're thinking, what in the world does this mean? Well, it means to sail close enough to the island to get protection from the wind so that you could arrive at your destination. You could go safely to the voyage. So twice we see that lee, meaning, folks, this, this was already a difficult sailing you know, experience in the first eight verses. It wasn't easy. It was, as, Paul would, uh, as Luke would say, with much difficulty. In Myra, they end up getting onto a cargo ship. And this time they end up landing in a place called Fair Havens in Crete. And you can tell by the narrative that this was not smooth sailing. It will get worse. You all ready? Verse 9. The Bible says, 
Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because of even, even the fast was already over. Mm, interesting, right? The fast was already over. Paul advised him saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Again, uh, Paul recognizes something's not right. You know, have you ever... Just think about this. So, say you are getting ready to board a plane to fly to Seattle, Washington this week. Jim, and or whoever's going on vacation. Some of you are going all over the place this coming few weeks. You're trying to get it in before school, right? Yeah, families are doing that. Suppose someone on the plane is, is well-traveled. Paul had traveled, some scholars believe, up to this point, 3,500 miles. Now, that's nothing in our day compared to the speaking. But that's a lot of water time and windshield time. Didn't have windshields back then, but you know what I mean. That's a lot of time. And so, what if someone was an expert in travel, and they said to you, something doesn't feel right about this uh, flight, and I think she's going down. I don't know about you guys, but I'd have major reservations. Would you not have major reservations if they told you they felt like something's not right and this thing is going down? Well, the issue is... Paul feels like, and I know what it is, it's the unction of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he is rem- the, the Spirit of God knows something's up. Paul knows something's not right. But it's not just that, it's also wisdom. You see the word fast? What does that mean? Well, the Passover would have been AD 59. And that would have taken place on October 5th, AD 59. So the idea is that they're about to put out into the sea in the most inhospitable time of year. Paul knew this. He's not stupid. He not only is a man of God, he has some wisdom. In fact, it was considered unsafe to get out onto the ocean in the Mediterranean Sea during this time frame. So Paul was experienced. He knew so. He was a well-seasoned traveler. And he says, I perceive, guys, we shouldn't do this. I've got reservations. But the guys have a ship meeting with the captain, owner, centurion. And they follow the advice of the sea captain because they're not going but 40 miles. And to button down a ship in the harbor they're in was not the best place to winter the ship. They thought, well, if we go 40 more miles, we're closer to our destination. We've got prisoners on here. It's a better place to winter the ship. So let's just press on those 40 miles. Everybody with the story? The narrative. Now verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along creek close to the shore. But soon a a tempestuous wind called a northeaster. Don't you love the NAS and the New King James Version? Eurachlodon. That's an interesting word, isn't it? Eurachlodon. This is called, well, translated, a northeaster. It struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Just notice how... Luke is so specific. He's a historian. Running under the lee of a small island called called Calda, we managed with difficulty to secure, to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope, check this out, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So, we pick up in verse 13 and we see from the scripture that uh, they should have taken Paul's advice. Right? South wind blew, and it would have been very easy for them to say, man, we've got this. Why is this guy thinking that it's going to be rough? I mean, it, sounds like, it seems like our destination is going to be great. It starts off nicely. 
Uh, Paul missed this one not so fast. Because the Bible says a northeaster approaches them. And the way the scripture reads is this thing, this storm, takes complete control of the ship. This scene is frightening. Uh, some of you that have been on the sea, uh, in the Navy, and you've been out to sea. I, I heard stories even over this weekend, once I, I started talking about this passage, and some older gentlemen talking to me about uh, some of the worst storms they had ever been in, when you consider their liners would go 35 feet deep into the water. And yet, they had seas come up over the bow of that boat. Unbelievable to think about that. It's a frightening scene. I'm sure you grew up as a child uh, with a dream like mine. And that dream was, I was lost at sea. And I was floating around and I couldn't see land in any direction. I got eaten by Jaws, right? <laughs> Especially if you're a little kid and you watch the Jaws movie. You're like, man, that's not the thing I should watch before I go to sleep. The ship, the boat that they pull in, sounds kind of confusing. But that's a little boat that they pull behind the main ship. And they took this boat. And they secured it, and they put it over into the ship. They salvaged it by hoisting it up. Then the, the text says they undergird the ship with ropes and cables. Again, nautical, it means frapping. That's the word. It means to take the cables, wrap them under the ship, do all you can to tie that thing up so that it doesn't come completely apart. Can you just catch the scene in your mind? Then they lower the sea anchor uh, that try to slow themselves down, yet according to the passage, they had no control of this ship. And Luke says, the next day, which means they went all during the night. At this point, they began to jettison the gear of the ship. Uh, it was absolutely necessary. They chunked, if it wasn't absolutely necessary, they chunked it overboard. On the third day, they throw over the ship's tackle and the rigging. Why? So that the ship sits higher on the water. The sky is black by day and by night. Uh, think about how hard it would be to navigate in the Mediterranean Sea with no light. No stars by night, no sun by day. They don't have GPS, folks. Pretty easy for us to fix that problem, not so with them. In verse 20, Luke says, we finally abandon all hope of being saved. Now, this isn't a physical sense of being rescued from the storm. The scene is one of incredible danger, incredible hopelessness. One commentator says, no sun, no stars, no gear, no hope. That's how bad the situation is. Everyone has given up, save one. Save one. Here's the amazing thing. This ship, in the midst of that storm, is as secure as if it was buttoned up for winter in the most secure harbor in the world. You know why? Because God's servant was on board. The Apostle Paul was on board on this ship. Now you can deduce some things from this, can't you? When God says that Paul in Acts 9.15, when he tells Ananias, this man will stand before kings and rulers and the Israelites for me. When it says in the text numerous times that Paul will stand and give a defense of the gospel in Rome, you can take it to the bank that Paul will be there. And so we understand this. Paul says some things to the men, beginning in verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, <laughs> this sounds like parents to kids, right? Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail for Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of, of, the, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. So it's a tough scene, isn't it? I wonder why they haven't eaten anything. It's obvious toward the end that there's going to be food on the boat. What's going on? Uh, perhaps it's seasickness. Can you imagine? 
how you would feel in this kind of situation. You're not on a luxurious lotion, uh, ocean liner, are you? And perhaps it was the sickness. Perhaps it was just they were absolutely terrified. And food was the last thing on their minds. But here Paul reminds them. Or here we know from the text they're not eating anything. Uh, Paul goes to wherever the people are gathered. I'm not sure in this kind of storm where you would head. But wherever they're gathered in this kind of a storm, with this kind of difficulty, Paul gets a hearing with them. And this certainly sounds like, I told you so. Doesn't it? That's what it sounds like. Paul actually says it like this in the original. If you would have listened to me, you would not have gained all this damage and loss. If you'd have just listened to me. So at least we should say this. Paul might not have been saying, I told you so, but he could be saying, the first time you didn't listen. But the second time, you need to listen, right? You need to pay me some attention. And of course, Paul says, uh, you should have listened to me. You wouldn't incur this damage. Now, the sailors were experienced sailors, don't you think? But even they assume that they're going to die. So to say, take courage, like Paul says to them, would have been against all reason, against all sound judgment, against logic that they're going to survive. These guys are professional sailors, and they think they have absolutely no hope that they're going to be saved. And then, Paul says, keep courage. There will be no loss of life. Just the ship will be lost. And I'm sure the owner of the ship's not too excited about that. But the fact of the matter is, that's what the Lord said. An angel appeared told me you will get to Rome. Paul, you will safely get to Rome. And not only you, but all of those who are on the ship with you. Now, Paul at this point knows the sovereign will of God by what we call divine revelation. The first time, it was wisdom. I don't think we ought to do this. But this time, God speaks directly to Paul. Now, at this point, I want to remind you... That we have a closed canon from Genesis to Revelation. God is not going to say anything to you that is not written in this book. So the people around who claim to have divine revelation where God speaks to you. Number one, I don't think you'd be alive if he did. But number two, it's contrary to the word of God when we know that the scripture teaches that God has given us all that pertains to life and godliness in this book that we have called the Bible. So as Southern Baptists, if you're a member, that's what you believe. We do not believe in divine revelation given from God directly to human beings unless it is found in this book. I have to say that to you because there's a lot of this going around in our day when people claim that God speaks to them. Like Benny Hinn once said that when he shaves in the morning, Jesus stands by him and puts his arm around his shoulder. And he lived? Really? When the Bible says that no man hath seen God and lived, and Jesus is in all of his glory, now, you're going to tell me that he lived and just chats with him while he shaves? I don't know why I'm on this soapbox, but anyway. <laughs> thought it was a good point to say this. So, God speaks to him by direct revelation. Now, do you think Paul could have deduced this, this that he's going to make it to Rome by what happened in the past? Yes, but isn't God awesome? To come forward and remind us of this. Why? Because we're made of dirt. <laughs> right? We're earthy. We're human beings. And even though Paul knows this in his mind that God has said it in the past, the Lord God of heaven speaks to him again. So the first one is a word of caution that Paul gives them by wisdom. The second one is by divine revelation. So for 25 years, Paul had experienced the fact that God's word never fails. Never once in all of Paul's Christian life had the word of God failed to accomplish what God said it would accomplish. Paul stood that day in a terrible storm. The worst storm he'd ever faced. And he stood that day on the word of God. Are y'all getting this? And the word of God has an infallible track record. He knew that they would survive and that God's word would not fail. He also knew that the ship would run aground. And he tells them this. They're in the Mediterranean Sea off the island of Crete. Do you know how difficult it would be to find a little small island in the middle of that ocean? Just so happened that they would find an island? Well, look at verses 27 through 32. When the 14th night had come, isn't that unbelievable? That amount of time, 
as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea. About midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they, lay, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Do you know they had actually not gone that far, had they? Uh, the 14th night, they're just spinning around out in the middle of the ocean. And they haven't really gone that far. And Luke identifies it as the Adriatic Sea. Now, that would have been a much larger body of water than what we call the Adriatic Sea today. But they're approaching land. And they're afraid they're going to hit rocks. And that's what you do when you're uh, in a ship with sails. And, and Well, nothing now. And they're trying their best to get to the sea or, or to a safe place. And they're approaching land and they're worried about the rocks. And they put out these soundings. Anybody know what that is? I mean, there's been a time when we were a kid where we would want to go deep into the water and we would just grab a rock. And it'd take you down 30 feet real fast. We were crazy. I know. Kids, don't do that. All right. In lakes and things like that, you got bob wire, all kinds. Don't do that. Don't be like us. Right? But soundings would be similar. You would tie a rock on the end of a rope and you would drop it off. You'd be able to tell how deep the water was as you were approaching. And so there was a 20, we might say a 15 and a 10. And buddy, they know that they're getting close to the land. And so when they do that, they drop the anchor. And here's what all of us would have done at, at, when it's dark. Let's drop the anchor and pray for daylight, right? Just pray that we'll be able to see. According to the text, they let out the anchors. But some of the sailors, under the pretense that they were helping to anchor the ship, decided that they're going to try to escape. And Paul gives another word of exhortation along the way. Unless these men stay on this ship, they cannot be saved. Now, the word from God was that no life would be lost. Is that not true? This means yes. Are you all awake? This means no. I know I'm going through a narrative, but you better hold on to the end. Okay? You better stay awake. The word from God was that no life would be taken. If God says no life will be lost, guess what we can assume? He's got a perfect track record, right? In between, what Paul does say is unless you stay on this ship, you cannot be saved. What do we call this? We call it a conditional warning. If you get off this ship, the guarantee of you having your life saved is negated. Is that true? Yes. Is the promise true? Yes. Is it a real condition? Yes. Is there real contention in the drama? Yes. They were certainly designing a way to get off the ship. This is what they were doing. They were not listening to the promise that you're going to be fine and you're going to arrive. The unless seems to go against the promise, doesn't it? But it is the condition, unless you stay on the ship, that is the means by which the promise will be fulfilled. I know that's deep theologically, but I promise you that's the way it's going to work out. In the next section, let's read 33 through 38. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair, ooh, and it's good, not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Man, I'm telling you, some of you guys love to hear that one, right? And I'm getting that way, right? And when he had said these things, he took bread. And giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. You need some strength for your preservation. You need to eat so that you will survive. Now, it's not just if you stay on the boat. Unless you stay on the boat, you're going to survive. Now, it's you need to eat for your survival. Paul takes the food and blesses it and gives it to them. What is so incredible about this text is this little guy. They tell us he was bald-headed, bow-legged. Not much of anything to look at. But here is a man who is now the leader 
of a Roman ship. Isn't that awesome? He's getting ready to stand before Caesar, but he is actually the leader on this ship. John Stott says, what a man. He was a man of God, a man of action. He was a man of the Spirit, but he was also a man of common sense. So Paul encourages the sailors, prisoners, and the crew. They will, at this time, lighten the ship more. And verses 39 through 44. Let's read it. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and let them in the sea, and at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. Look good at first. Uh, smooth sailing, right? You see the ocean, you see the beach. You're going to make it. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. In other words, coming together of two seas, two rivers, two interchangeable parts of the water. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying on their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land. And the rest, i.e., those who can't swim, grab onto planks or pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Now look at this. Verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of being saved was at last abandoned. Verse 44. And the rest on the planks are pieces of ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So, in 39 through 44, what was the promise? There would be no loss of life. God keeps His promise, right? But does He keep the promise smoothly without drama? Does He? He keeps it with all the flair of a divine dramatist. And that's what our God is. He does all things that will exalt His glory in His person. There's a greater deliverance when God is in control. When he does it his way, they head toward the beach. It all looks good. They see a smooth spot, and we're going to make it. The confidence is booming, and guess what happens? All confidence is lost again, and they know they're going to fear for their life, uh, which is a reminder for us. The confidence in that moment only lasted for a brief time. This, by the way, is a life of faith, is it not? You ought to expect something to come up in the walk of faith. That will cause you at times to waver into doubt. You're not walking with Jesus if that doesn't happen. I can promise you. When you walk with Christ, there will be difficulties. There will be times when you think you should waver and you should doubt. So the bow is struck and it's in a cross current. The stern is about to be broken into pieces. Fear and uncertainty and danger are prevailing upon each one. Remember, a soldier had a contract. What was that contract? If your prisoner got away... You suffer the penalty that was due them. And most people believe that these prisoners were headed to Rome to die. So if you lost a prisoner, you died. So he, this was an effort of job security. Right? And the effort was, let's just kill all the prisoners before they get away. But if they kill one prisoner, the promise is null and void. Because God said, how many will make it? All. And Julius, the centurion, intervenes because he loves Paul. He's been kind to Paul, and after he orders everyone off the ship, the promise is secured. Is it? No, it's not. There's still a lot of drowning that can take place. Seriously. You think about being out into the, in the ocean, and you've got these the two oceans coming together, and you've got this difficulty, and the stern is going to be broken to pieces, and you've got to get out of that boat to swim. And the Bible tells us that if you can swim, go after it. And if you can't, you better grab something and hope for the best. But the Bible says that everyone arrives at the, at the shore safely. Again, look at the difference between 20, verse 20 and verse 44. All hope abandoned, they're going to be saved. All arrive safely. Alistair Beggs preaches a sermon with alls. All aboard, all lost, all gained. Really good. Another writer I saw added... To beg sermon and added six more alls. 
And I think the last one was all survive. That's pretty good, isn't it? All right. Give me, let me give you two points of application from this long narrative. Number one, God protects and preserves his people. Can you not see that in the story? Paul was totally confident in the Heavenly Father's watch care, preserving his life. What he said to the, about the crew, no loss of life, no hair damage, was also true of the Apostle Paul. We have men in our church who are in law enforcement, don't we? We have, we have men and women in, in our church that have difficult jobs that are dangerous. It's a dangerous job. Each and every day our Heavenly Father protects and guards them, preserves them. As long as the Father is not through with you this side of heaven, He will preserve you and protect you. You are invincible until God finishes His purpose with you. And I know some of you are thinking, I just don't believe that. Well, you don't believe God is sovereign. You don't believe He controls all things, do you? If you do... And you belong to Him. And you're walking in His ways. And you're committed to Christ. You are invincible until God finishes His purpose with you. What would make any difference? David brought this out well today. The same God that lived inside of Paul lives inside of you. The same God that said to Paul, I'm going to deliver you exactly to where I'm having you go. The advancement of the gospel. Uh, Is God powerful enough to get the gospel around the world? He's got the goods to get it done, doesn't He? He said, I'm going to advance the gospel to Rome, and Paul is going to speak it there. And yes, he does. Now, the fact is, Paul was as safe as if he was being guarded by the greatest fortress in all the world because he belonged to the Lord. And it's not only true for police officers, it's also true for you. It's true for the saints. Proverbs 2, 8, we said that. He guards those who walk in justice. He protects His saints. Our Father is committed to preserving and protecting us as long as He has things in this world for His people to do. Have you ever read what Paul has to say in 2 Corinthians 6? I've gone through all these things. And yes, at one point in Corinthians, to the Corinthians, he will mention shipwreck. And you're looking at it, right? I've been through all of these things. His life was at risk in numerous points along the way. But he's safely brought through every single time because the Father preserves and protects his people. I think you got to be careful, okay, not to come away from this text thinking, well, uh, people allegorize Scripture. And you take away the real meaning. Uh, I've, I've read sermons where people said, well, there are four anchors mentioned here, which represents four things that we should apply to life. It's terrible preaching. Right? You have no idea what those four anchors are because an anchor is an anchor. And I got news for you, a ship is a ship. You can't make this say something that it's not saying. However, we can clearly see in this text that there's something to do with the preservation of saints. Preservation and perseverance of the saints when it comes to this text. You've got this promise that everyone is going to be saved physically. And you've got God coming through with the promise. That is called an infallible word of the Lord, an infallible promise. And the Bible tells us that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Is anybody listening? All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. We have great promises, don't we? My sheep will never perish. Oh, folks. Oh, in our world, just watch the news. Just think about the world we live in. Isn't it awesome to hear our master, the great shepherd, say to us, none of my sheep will perish. My sheep know my voice. Isn't that awesome to hear that? How about the great promise, like nothing shall separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And God, and Paul goes on to give you every possible uh, venue of separation. Neither height nor depth nor any other thing can separate us From the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a great promise. You ought to tie that promise around your heart like a rope. That anchors your soul to heaven. Amen. Yet you also have some real conditions. Stay on this ship. You won't make it. Is that true? You better believe it's true. Eat for your preservation. Is that true? Yep. Don't kill the prisoners. Real conditions. 
being real. They're, they're real conditions, and they end up becoming real means by which God uses to accomplish His purposes. The reason they're all brought to safely, folks, is not because they were in a bulletproof submarine. It's not because of their lack of difficulty. They had conditions along their journey. God used all the conditions to bring all the men safely through. The exact same thing is true of the perseverance of the saints. Are you all listening? God has precious, magnificent promises. But there are conditions. And their conditions are real. He uses these conditions to keep you persevering along the way. And here's the deal. People will look at the Bible and say, well, see there, you can lose your salvation. Number one, they're allegorizing the text, right? But number two, that's not ever what the Word of God says. But what the Word of God does say is those who are persevering are the ones that will persevere. Act, uh, Hebrews chapter 10. The reason you're going to persevere is because you're preserved by the Lord. Are you all listening? So for any of you not to heed the conditions... You've lost your mind. Some of us think, well, I prayed that prayer, preacher, a long time ago. I asked Jesus to be the, uh, well, I asked Jesus, I asked Jesus into my heart. How sweet is that? What are you doing today? Are you persevering? Are you listening to the warnings? Hebrews has five huge warning signs. Even though the book is soundly that the redeemed will persevere. You will make it to heaven based upon the work of Jesus Christ. No questions asked. Once for all sacrifice. Hallelujah. It's over. However, there's some conditions along the way. There's some road signs that remind you there's warnings on the way. You're not supposed to see a, a warning sign, which is a curve coming up, and freak out and wreck. You're supposed to see the curve and know that there's a curve coming so that you adjust for the curve. So that you know there's some warning signs. Well, if you just take no warning signs, and if you don't see any conditions in life... There's a good chance that you don't know the Lord. Because God is preserving you along the way by the conditions that you see. And the same God that justifies the means, the end, is also doing the means to get you to the end. Y'all see how awesome God is? And every time when Paul gives an unless, or Paul says you better eat, he's giving you a condition. Because if you've got any sense and you believe the Word of God, you better listen. If you belong to Him, you will listen. Was there a time for Paul to declare without clarification, you're all going to make it? Was there? You better believe it. Was there a time for him to say to them, there's some conditions, unless, prisoner, you be don't kill a prisoner, you better eat something. Was there a right time for that? Quali yep, you better believe it. When the encounter, we encounter texts like this, here's what we need to do. We need to give the promises of God forthrightly with all the fervor of Scripture. But when there's some conditions there, preachers ought to preach the conditions. Unless you persevere, you're not one of God's children. They went out from us because they were not part of us. Had they been of us, they would have remained. Amen? That's a warning. It's a warning. Will God's people make it to glory? You better believe it. Signed, sealed, delivered. There's not going to be one chair turned up at the marriage supper of the Lamb of someone who was supposed to be in that seat but didn't make it. It's not happening. God is sovereign over all of life. But I want to remind you there's some conditions along the way. And preachers ought to preach the conditions. We ought to preach the warnings. Alright, number two. God demonstrates His providence over all of life. Our God certainly has a flair for the dramatic, doesn't He? Just look at your own life. Don't you wish you could just go from point A to point B? Don't you? Don't you wish? Just think about this. The Lord could have placed Paul on a ship. And he could have had the best seas in all the world. And he could have sailed straight over to Italy and went into Rome and defended the gospel. But that's not what happened. Instead, instead, we have drama. Our God is not boring, is he? I can promise you that. Uh, sometimes we need some white knuckle faith. Abraham needed tests from the Lord so that he would believe what God said. And I want to remind you folks, it is when it looks all it looks like all is gone and we, it won't turn out like God said. That's all the more reason for you to trust Him all the more in what He said. Are y'all listening? Because there's times in life when it seems like, well, this is not going to turn out like the Lord said it would. But I promise you, if God said it, it will. It will. 
we have scenes of drama all along the way. Then our God accomplishes His sovereign purposes. Does your heart ever hurt for people? I mean, when we look around at our church family, sometimes that drama ends in cancer. Man, we, we feel like we don't have an answer for that one, don't we? I mean, when you're a believer in, the America, in America, man, it's not supposed to end that way. I mean, this is pie in the sky by and by. But the reality is, sometimes the drama ends even for believers with cancer. Uh, sometimes it ends in the prime of life, which we think, oh, what a life wasted. <laughs> you don't know God. You don't know the Lord's plan if you believe any of His saints' lives are ever wasted. It's not the length of years you live on this earth. It's the length of the service to Christ in the years that you live on earth. It's your commitment to Him that far supersedes. Sometimes this drama ends in cancer. Sometimes it ends in difficulty and hardship and pain. But I want to tell you, our God is still sovereign. He still rules. You can trust Him. And by the way, it was Paul that said, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But we're so earthbound, aren't we? We're so bound to the comforts of the U.S. And it has not even entered our mind what God has for us in the future. Those who belong to Him. Isn't that awesome? So God has a flair for the dramatic. No question about it. Are you trusting Him? The Heidelberg Confession says this on the providence of God. It's the Heidelberg Catechism. We all might say, okay, preacher, what is the providence of God? And that question is asked in the Heidelberg Catechism. And here's what it says. The Almighty in everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by His hand, He still upholds heaven, earth, and all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass and rain and drought and fruitful and bearing years and food and drink and health and sickness and riches and poverty, all things come not by chance, but by our Heavenly Father's hand. How many of you believe that confession? Raise your hand. Some of you are a little bit iffy. Either God is fully sovereign or He's not sovereign at all. We testify that our God is omniscient. Y'all know what that means? It means He knows all things. He knows absolutely every situation that is ever going to occur on the face of this earth. He is absolutely omniscient from beginning to end. That's why He's God. Are y'all listening? I know some of you give me the deer in the headlight look. But either he's sovereign. Is, is there something that God knows or learns? Is there, is there something that God ever learns? <laughs> Folks, he's God. Are you with me? He is. That's the providence of God. It's his fatherly hand. Paul is going to get to Rome. God said so. His promise and his providence will not fail. Paul was like a rock. In the middle of 275 other people, because he knew the Father's word, even when it seemed that all would be lost, Paul knew that God had spoken. Do you know this in your own life, that God has spoken? Check this verse out. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? Now, when you call upon the name... That means you're identifying with the character of the name. That means he's the son of God and the Messiah. He's not some Johnny come lately. He's the son of God who left the confines of heaven, came down to this earth, robed himself in humanity. 100% God, 100%. Do you believe all those things? You believe he conquered the grave and came forth resurrected? See, uh, calling on the name means more than just get out of hell free card. It means you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you testify to that. Those promises are real. So Paul knew that God had spoken. And I hope you understand this morning that these are the same principles that govern all of our lives today. When we look into the Word and we think about Paul, we think, well, that's just not the way God works today. Really? Maybe it's just the way we're seeing things or the way we're not seeing things. What an amazing narrative of Scripture. Are you trusting the Lord in your life? Are you? In the ups and downs, in the valleys, and the difficulties. My dad and I used to sing, The God of the mountain is also the God of the valley. That's true, isn't it? For the God of 
The mountain is still God in the valley. When things go wrong, He'll make them right. And the God of the good times, here it is, is still God in the bad times. The God of the day is still God of the night. I see you saying the words, but do you believe it? If you belong to Jesus, you can mark her down. You're going to get safely through. All the ones the Father hath given to me, I will keep. Boy, he's a good shepherd, isn't he? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can pray. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you. What a promise that we will be also. Lord, help us to trust in your sovereignty. Lord, we don't understand certain things. We're, we're human. But dare we not take your word and make it say something it doesn't. God forbid that we dumb down the scriptures. Because there's a tension that we just can't. See and fathom as human beings. But one thing that is clear from the Bible is you are God. You alone are God. And the Bible says in the book of Job that your plans cannot be thwarted. Lord, that you are sovereign. And we rest in the sovereignty. There's conditions. There's drama. There's difficulty. There's pain. But Father, we thank you so much that for your children we will persevere. Lord, you preserved us. We thank you for it. If there's someone today that is lost in this building, I pray that they would confess with Thomas when he saw Jesus in all of his resurrected glory. And he wouldn't believe until he thrust his hand in his side and touched his hand, saw the scars, and Jesus appeared. And Thomas exclaimed, My Lord and my God. He not only saw that he was the Son of God, he committed himself to him. In other words, Jesus would be the Lord of his life in control of all things. Lord, help people to do that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.